0: Hello, and thank you for joining me today. My name is Abby Cornette, and I'm the patient advocate for IG Living Magazine. This podcast is brought to you by IG Living Magazine to give readers an opportunity to hear from healthcare experts on topics important to them. Episode number eight PI and allergies. In this episode, we will be talking about immunodeficiencies and allergies. Today we have guest speaker, Dr. Brett Kettlehut. Dr. Kettlehut is a board certified in pediatrics, allergy, and immunology. He is currently practicing allergy and immunology at Boys Town National Hospital in Nebraska and is an adjunct clinical professor at the College of Medicine at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Dr. Kettlehut also serves as the president of the Nebraska Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Good morning, Dr. Kettlehut, and thank you for joining me today. As a patient advocate, I frequently get the question about allergies and primary immunodeficiencies. PI patients contact me looking for information on allergies. Having PI and allergies on the surface seems uh, a little illogical since PI is caused by a weakened immune system or a compromised immune system, whereas allergies are the result of an overactive immune system. However, PI patients frequently suffer from allergies. Can you please explain this disconnect?
1: Well, thank you, Abby, for inviting me to be on your podcast this morning. In regards to your question about allergies and primary immune deficiency, the first thing we have to recognize that the prevalence of allergies is far greater than primary immune deficiencies, which I'll call PID, just to make it a little easier on this podcast. It's estimated that 30, even 40% of the general population have some sort of allergy, where in PID, while you you can see this, and the patients do have these symptoms, it is not as prevalent as the occurrence of allergies. As you know, it's not a very common uh, illness that we have to deal with. In fact, the most common of the immune deficiencies to selective IgA deficiency, and that only occurs at most one in a hundred to one in a thousand patients. With the high prevalence of allergy, it would not be expected to have patients with both allergies and primary immune deficiency, confusing the distinction between the two. Another factor that complicates the identification of PID is that, in my opinion, antibiotics are overprescribed for allergies. So the recognition of PID is not considered. Also, as typically healthcare is now fragmented and that many patients are treated by different providers for the same complaints, it makes it difficult to connect that there could be a primary immune deficiency. Finally, as PID is rare, it is not typically considered as the underlying cause of most infections, in particular sinusitis, bronchitis, and other respiratory infections. My personal experience is that most of the PID patients that I've diagnosed actually were referred to me for evaluation for allergies. And that's why I think there's a a confusion between allergies and primary immune deficiency.
0: You know, that brings an interesting question. Um, We know that there's frequently a long time between someone uh, demonstrating symptoms of a primary immune deficiency and their actual diagnosis. Where, where do you see most of your patients being referred to from? Is it ear, nose, and throat doctors, primary care?
1: When we talk about referral from subspecialists, um, I think the two subspecialists that we will refer are the otolaryngologists, the ENTs, and the pulmonary physicians. Of course, they're dealing with different organ systems. The ENT, of course, is dealing with sinusitis. The pulmonologist is dealing with recurrent pneumonias and bronchitis. I would say those are the two most likely referral sources for evaluation for recurrent infections. Although, as I mentioned, I think most of my referrals have been by primary care for difficult to control um, allergy symptoms, meaning recurrent sinusitis and potentially bronchitis. No, that
0: that's interesting. Um, when you talked about the, the, a lot of times there's a disconnect between uh, the number of providers that a patient's seeing. If you were going to recommend to our patients that suspect they might have something besides allergies, how do you recommend that they gather all that information together from the different doctors? Well, sometimes it's not easy we to do
1: because it requires a certain understanding of primary immune deficiency. I think in general, if a patient requires antibiotics two, three, four times a year, or if they have unusual infections like pneumonias or any sort of odd infections, deep seated infections, that should raise in their mind that this is not an allergy problem but may have to do with their body's ability to fight off infections.
0: Thank you. The next question I wanted to ask you is, can you explain to our listeners um, how the immune system reacts to an allergen and what some of the symptoms are? The immune
1: uh, for me. Okay, well, you know the immune system. I like to make it rather simplified, although it is not simple by any means. But the way I like to discuss this is, I look at a coin that has two sides. Of course, then all coins have two sides. I've never seen a three-sided coin, but nonetheless, I digress. <laughs> one side. I'm not sure that's oh,
0: geometrically possible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it would be interesting. Um, one side uh, relates to overactivity or autoimmunity. The other side is the is related to providing um, protection from infections, and as long as that's balanced, everything's fine. But if the coin is not balanced, let's say it leads more to autoimmunity, of course, then patients will develop autoimmune disease, which actually is not uncommon in, in common variable immunodeficiency. But that's another subject. And then the other side of the coin is the side of the coin that protects us from an, uh, infections primarily by making antibodies. The antibodies that protect us from infection are typically IgG and IgA. The antibody IgE though is the antibody that in most cases causes allergies. When our immune system encounters a protein, which is not us, it will normally respond by producing IgG and IgE antibodies. This is the purpose of immunization, such as the COVID immunizations, influenza vaccinations, is to produce these protective antibodies. In some instances, the antibody produces IgE, which can trigger an allergy in the future, such as hay fever in the fall, or food allergies, such as peanut or shrimp, period. Also, in this case, it's the genetics of the individual, which seems to play a significant role in how IgE is produced and how IgE ultimately affects them?
0: You know, um, frequently, well, we've all heard the term immune deficiency. We've all heard the term autoimmune and allergies. Um, Instead of saying immune deficiency, because a lot of times it's more like a, would you say it's more like a dysregulation of the immune system where you have too little in one and then you uh, have too much of another when they have the allergies?
1: Well, there's there's kind of a disconnect, I think, at times. Um, I don't think, if I understand the question correctly, maybe you should repeat that question so I can make sure I understand it.
0: Uh, A lot of times our, our primary immune deficiency patients or PI patients also present with other diseases that are more autoimmune in nature or allergic in nature. So besides it just being an immune deficiency there's also some type of a disre- is there also some type of a dysregulation in the immune system
1: well you're absolutely correct because the immune system has multiple components the antibody component is from our b cells the autoimmune is from our t cells and t cells are thought to be like the conductor of the orchestra the orchestra members are the b cells but sometimes the t cells react in an abnormal fashion and it's the T cells which drive our body to produce autoimmune disease. So there's different components of our immune system which account for uh, the primary immunodeficiency versus that of autoimmune disease. And unfortunately, many of our CBID patients, common variable immunodeficiency patients, have both. They have poor antibody response. And they actually even have some abnormal antibody response caused probably by the T cells in some degree that cause like issues like autoimmune cytopenias, autoimmune thrombocytopenia, uh neutropenia, those are your more common autoimmune cytopenias that affect your blood cells. Thank you very much.
0: Dr. Cuddlehead, it's my understanding that correctly diagnosing an allergy in PI patients can be difficult because uh, the patients are more prone to infection and allergic reactions manifest similar to infections at times, and in fact, allergies are frequently suspected as an underlying cause of repeated infections. And I know you touched on that a little bit earlier, but um, are because my guess, my question is because allergies are far more common than PI. When should you look? for that diagnosis? And I know you touched on that a little bit
1: earlier. Well, the diagnosis of allergy is not difficult in our PAD patients, but as you mentioned, the recognition of allergies may not be straightforward. Seasonal allergies are pretty easy to recognize because a typical hay fever in the fall symptoms of itchy, eyes, sneezing, runny nose, nasal congestion the year-round allergies or perennial allergies are more difficult because typically those present with chronic nasal and sinus symptoms of fullness congestion and post-nasal drainage that are often considered or confused with sinus infections. And in particular, in the case of recurrent infections, the real issue is how often does the patient require antibiotics and what's the response? You know allergies are not treated by antibiotics. infections are. and one of the one of the things you see in these patients is that they're on multiple antibiotics throughout the year they get better, but then the symptoms come back thereafter and it's related to the frequency of the antibiotics improving the symptoms, not not allergies, seasonal allergy or perennial allergies. And sometimes you get very unusual infections. I had one patient that I diagnosed with CVID and her presenting complaint was recurrent. Eurosepsis, which is basically bacterial infections of the bloodstream. Did I answer your question for you? Yeah, yes. You um,
0: no, you, you pretty much did. What I am looking at is when should physicians look at PI as the cause of reincurrent infections rather than allergies? And then also when you mentioned um, the overuse of antibiotics, what what would you consider too much too many prescriptions of antibiotics over the course of a year uh, before you need to be looking for other uh, causes besides allergies?
1: Well, let's answer the, the, the last question first. Yeah. The number of times I'm personally on an antibiotic in a year is never. Okay. So anytime that a physician is prescribing an antibiotic, the indication ought to be pretty clear that this is a bacterial infection. All right. I think many times, though, this is not the case that antibiotics are quick and easy to prescribe for symptoms which may or may not be true infections. So, if as a patient you are being prescribed antibiotics on a frequent basis, even um, one or two times a year, you have to kind of think about well, what am I being treated for? Is this truly a bacterial infection? or is this a viral infection, about 90% or better of antibiotics in this country, I believe, are being prescribed for viral infections. So I think any physician treating a patient when they are prescribing antibiotics should be always thinking as to why am I prescribing this antibiotic? What's the reason? For example, most sinus infections that require antibiotics occur after having a viral upper respiratory tract infection that doesn't clear after seven to 10 days. And then, again, because of the fragmented nature, a lot of times providers do not go back and look in the records to see, yeah, this is your third or fourth antibiotic this year. Those are red flags, in my opinion, that the physician ought to at least think about why does this patient need so many antibiotics, regardless of the etiology. I just think that's good medicine.
0: I I completely agree with you. Um, All you have to do is look at, The number of people, number of times people are prescribed antibiotics a year, and frequently it's way too often. And uh, the second part of that question, this is getting a little bit off the original topic, but when you talk about allergies, the how often do does an allergic reaction actually turn into a bacterial infection? Because if you have the allergy long enough and you're congested, does that ever turn into an infection?
1: Well, it could. I think that's uh, with severe allergy, whether it's seasonal or perennial, that's undertreated, and you get a lot of nasal mucosal congestion and changes in the sinuses. Especially if the sinuses are obstructed, they cannot drain properly. Then you are pred- being predisposed to having an infection, especially if you get a virus on top of. It. So now you got a double whammy. You've got the underlying inflammation of your nasal passage and your sinuses from allergy. And now you get the viral inflammation and the two together then make it more likely for you to develop a secondary bacterial infection. Primary bacterial infections, I think the sinuses would make you think there's some issue going on with the immune system. There's something else I needed to look at.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, there are different forms of PI associated with an increased susceptibility to allergies. And there are others associated with specific allergies. For instance, Um, Does a patient with hyper-IgE syndrome tend to develop more allergies than other PI patients?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I've actually took care of one patient with um, hyper-IgE. And this patient, this is a very unusual, by the way, uh, immune deficiency. It's not very common. Um, And these patients can have associated eczema, but their real problem is recurrent staphylococcal infections, especially pulmonary infections. So they may have findings that you consider allergic, but I don't think it's truly allergy. The hyper-IgE patients, they produce excessive IgE, but it's more of a general production. It's not necessarily as specific as to an individual with hay fever who has IgE primarily to ragweed. They do make IgE antibodies, but usually that's more towards the bacteria that cause the infections like staphylococcus. The other autoimmune disease that has typically elevated IgE is called Wishcott aldrich syndrome. That's excellent. It's found in boys. They typically do have eczema. They also can have other findings of allergies and asthma. Um, And they also have uh, what they call small uh, platelets of thrombocytopenia. But again, these are very rare patients that I believe are being picked up in neonatal screening now. What complicates this sometimes is the fact some of our patients with atopic dermatitis, which is allergy, can have extremely high serum IgE levels. But when you go back and you look at these patients, they're not having recurrent infections. What they're having is significant eczema that can be associated with food allergy in some instances.
0: That's very interesting. Uh, Now that you brought up the food allergies, is there also a correlation between PI and food allergies? And if so, is there a specific form of PI that's more susceptible to food allergies than other forms?
1: Well, when you talk about food allergy, the most common food-associated reaction is going to be in patients with selective IgA deficiency. Those patients may have celiac disease. I'm sure you've heard of that. Now, celiac disease is not a true food allergy, in my opinion. It's an immunological reaction to the protein called gluten, and that causes inflammation of the small intestine which then leads to malabsorption. So it's a food sensitivity, if you want to think of it that way, but I don't necessarily think of it as a true food allergy as one would think someone is allergic to peanut or to shrimp. There could be some other intolerances too that may be confused with food allergy. Well, the most common intolerance, of course, is lactose or milk intoler- protein intolerance, Yes, or lactose sugar and milk protein intolerance. So you may have some patients that have this intolerance, which is not unusual, and then it gets confused as a, a secondary to their immune deficiency.
0: That's very interesting. Um, the what? What do you suppose is one of the most serious food allergies? Probably peanut allergies?
1: Well, in the general population, in children, it tends to be peanut with nuts, In adults, it tends to be more of your uh, shellfish. Um, But what makes food allergy dangerous is lack of preparation and lack of immediate treatment when a person does have an exposure to food allergen. Because to date, we don't have a cure for food allergy. All we can do is best is identify what the specific food is, counsel the parent or the patients how to avoid this and then prepare them for any accidental exposures that may occur in the future because the number one reason for a food allergy after it's been diagnosed of course is accidental exposure nobody in their right mind is getting food that they know they're allergic to
0: that is very true (laughs) uh i certainly can't eat strawberries we'll just leave it at that it's it's nothing severe but no i don't like hives for a week um So is there a difference in the treatment protocols for PI patients with allergies versus without allergies and should immunoglobin uh, immunoglobin trough levels be checked and if so, when? Why I'm asking about trough levels is if you're going to test for allergies after a person has had um, IgG, uh, should it be done immediately after or before their next infusion or treatment? because the levels are so much higher after an
1: infusion than before. Well, again, since we're talking about IgE, not IgG, I am not aware that these immunoglobulin products having a large amount of IgE.
0: How much IgE does, do products have, and would that affect allergy testing? And if it does, when should a patient have the testing done?
1: Let's make the assumption that there is significant IgE, okay? I'm not sure that's the case. There's a lot of different products. But if you were going to tell me, well, how can we minimize that possibility? I agree a trough level would be when I would draw that. But the problem is, as you well know, the primary way we deliver gamma now is subcutaneously. Yes. We don't get these peak troughs anymore. That's true. But it's continual level. So I think that this is an interesting concept, but unless you're one of those few patients who are getting monthly infusions, there really isn't a trough level to look at.
0: That's interesting. My question was based on um, infusions versus sub-Q, and with sub-Q, you would have a constant level.
1: So I, I, I suppose if you're going to check, I would check if they're on monthly, I would go ahead and I would check right before their next monthly infusion. But if they're on the, the weekly subcutaneous, I don't think it really matters. But like I said, I'm not aware of what IgE levels, how much IgE is located. I mean, is it in um, how many, how much IgE is in these various preparations? As you know, there's a, there's different preparations. Yes. Of, and each of, have different; uh, they're different compo- composed differently. Right, and I have no idea what the what the amounts are now. If you assume. That you are getting a large pool of individuals donating, and 30 to 40% do have allergies, you will find, could theoretically find IgE in theres in the products. In that particular case, instead of doing skin testing, which is the typical way that I look for IgE-mediated food allergies, I think that immunocap rats, which is blood test, might be more useful because you can quantitate the amount of IgE in the patient's blood, and that might help you to determine, along with history, whether or not there's a food allergy. You have to remember the presence of IgE does not prove allergy, it proves sensitization. So you have to go back and you have to look at the history. In fact, if the history doesn't suggest food allergy, I don't look, because you can get spurious results. You can get false positives. That's an excellent point.
0: Um, Well, we're kind of running out of time today, so I wanted to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, It's been a real pleasure to have you, and I hope to have you as a speaker again in the future. Is there anything else you'd like to cover before we wrap it up?
1: I just want to thank you for allowing me to participate in your podcast I think that your service that you provide is much needed, and I'm certain it's much appreciated by patients with primary immune deficiency.
0: Thank you very much. Listeners, thank you again for joining us today. Additional information regarding this podcast can be found on our website at www.igliving.com. If you have a question that was not answered, please contact me at acornette at igliving.com. Look for the next IG Living Podcast announcement on our website for the opportunity to submit your questions. IG Living Advocate is a copyright production of IG Living Magazine, published by FFF Enterprises, the only magazine for immunoglobulin community comprised of patients who suffer from chronic illness and their caregivers.